Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Good evening, everyone, and happy Tuesday. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Cold Case Road Trip. If you're new here or you've been listening for a long time, let me just briefly explain. Here on the Murder Bucket Podcast, we are currently in a series called, like you heard before, the Cold Case Road Trip. Over the course of about 30 episodes, we have traveled to all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories. And each week, we talk about one cold case in two locations. After tonight's episode, we only have three episodes remaining. Tonight, we are on stops 48 and 49, and we will be traveling to the northern Marinia Islands and Nevada. But as always... Let's do our week-slash-weekend recap. My previous week really wasn't that exciting, except for around 1 o'clock on Friday afternoon, my husband and I got a phone call from some friends of ours, a husband and wife, that have rented a house about an hour and a half to two hours south of us for just the weekend, like, I think it was five days and four nights, and they were there by themselves until the husband's parents could join them, and they invited us to come down, which obviously was super last minute, but we went ahead and did it. We wanted to be spontaneous, and we really wanted to hang out with them, and we honestly just really wanted to have an enjoyable, relaxing weekend. So as soon as I got home, we got everything packed up, we got our daughter in the car, and we headed out. And I think we got there about 8 o'clock that evening. Now, mind you, my daughter was super quiet in the car, didn't make very much of a fuss, only burped, I think, one time, which the significance of that is coming later. So like I said, we got there about 8 o'clock, and... The husband and wife had previously been fishing earlier in the day and caught a few like really small perch. So I figured they weren't going to be very big. So I brought some fish for myself because, well, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before, but I am actually a pescatarian, which means I only eat seafood, meat and poultry and like sausages and stuff like that actually irritate my stomach. I've kind of come to the conclusion that maybe I'm allergic to it, but surprisingly enough, seafood doesn't irritate that, so I still eat it. But anyways, when we got there, we pulled into the driveway and we got out. I opened the car door to get my daughter out and lo and behold, 
she had thrown up all over herself. Now, remember, I said she only made that one noise, which was a tiny little burp. So we actually have no idea when she threw up on herself. So about an hour into us getting there, we had to clean up the car. We had to take the whole car seat apart, get it washed. I had to take her out of the car, get her out of her clothes, clean her up, try and do that. And then I helped my friend, the wife, cook dinner, which obviously was the fish that I brought and the little teeny tiny perch that I caught, which really wasn't that enjoyable, honestly, because it was way too small to be eaten. And then we just kind of hung out. We talked. We just kind of laid around in the living room, put my daughter to bed. And then Saturday morning, we woke up around, I think it was 6.30, and we went out on the little back like deck area and just hung out, had coffee. I made breakfast, and then we fished for a little bit, didn't catch anything. And then the husband's parents showed up about 3 o'clock, and we were just kind of tooling around, talking, messing around, you know, just doing that thing. Then by that evening, we went to dinner. We tried to go to a couple different places. The first place was closed for a wedding. The second place had an hour wait for all eight of us. And finally, the third place, we got in and we actually really enjoyed it. It was great. So from dinner, my husband and I and our daughter left to drive home. And of course, every teeny tiny little noise she made I had to unbuckle my seatbelt, crawl back there, and make sure she hadn't thrown up on herself. But all in all, Friday night to Saturday was absolutely amazing. And then Sunday, we obviously went to church, and then we drove probably about an hour and a half northwest of us to an apple orchard and picked apples with several of our friends. If you would like to see those pictures, let me know. I'll share them with you, or you can check them out on my personal Instagram page, which that I think is linked on my Murder Bucket page. Then, of course, Monday rolled around, nothing exciting, and then now it's Tuesday, and you're here with me. So without further ado, let's get started with tonight's episode. Stop 48, the Northern Mariana Islands. So the Northern Mariana Islands actually only has three cold cases listed anywhere that I can find. So the information that I am reading for tonight's episode is taken directly from the charlieproject.com. 23-year-old Rosalind Camancho was last seen in Cobblerville on August 23rd, 1998. She was fighting with her husband and decided to stay with her sister for the week. She borrowed her sister's Toyota Camry that evening. She never returned and was never heard from again. The next morning on August 24th, the vehicle was found parked in the back of a golf course at Coral Ocean Point. Fifty feet away near the cliff line, her shoes were found. Police state, that there was evidence of a struggle, but no elaboration was given. Her case remains unsolved. Rosalind is of Asian descent and had black hair and brown eyes. 
There is no description of what she was last seen wearing. Paloma and her sister Melina were last seen standing at the bus stop in their village of Azteo on the island of Saipan in the northern Mariana Islands on May 25, 2011. They were last seen sitting on a cement slab waiting for their bus at 6.30 a.m. to take them to Cagman Elementary School. They never boarded the bus and have never been heard from again. When the girls failed to arrive at school, their teachers marked them absent. Their families didn't realize they were missing until 3.30 that afternoon when they didn't come home as scheduled. Their disappearances were reported to the police at 5.30 that evening. Garbage collectors said they had stopped to collect garbage behind the Luke Children's bus stops at 5.45 in the morning that the day the girls disappeared. They spent about 10 minutes picking up the garbage there and didn't see Philoma, Melina, or any other children at the stop at the time. The day the girls disappeared was a Wednesday. On that previous Wednesday, and also on the Wednesday before that, the garbage collectors had noticed the same gray Nissan pickup truck in the vicinity of the bus stop. On May 11th, the truck was parked near the gate of the Santa Lourdes Shrine with its high beam lights turned on. On May 18th, the truck was driving in the direction of the bus stop. The garbage collectors did not see that truck on the morning of May 25th, however, and it's unclear if the truck has any connection with Philoma or Melina's case. The girls were both carrying backpacks at the time that they vanished. One is described as dark-colored with the owner's name and telephone number written on the straps. The other is a purple Dora the Explorer pack with writing on the shoulder straps. Both backpacks disappeared along with the girls and they have never been located. The girls lived with their grandparents at the time of their disappearances and had been since 2007. At the time they went missing... Their father was living on the island of Pompeii in the Federated States of Micronesia, and their mother lived in Guam. Their mother returned to Saipan after the girls' disappearance to assist in the search. Investigators ruled out the girls' parents and most of their other relatives as suspects in their cases. Their mother now lives in Virginia, and their father still lives in Micronesia. Alan Ogden, a former firefighter, is a person of interest in Faloma and Molina's case. He is related to them by marriage, and he refused to take a lie detector test about their disappearance. He moved to Burien, Washington in August of 2011 and was arrested there for domestic violence. Joseph Chrysostomo was also considered a possible suspect. In 2014, he had been sentenced to life in prison for the 2012 kidnap, rape, and murder of a Saipan woman. Authorities dug up his parents' backyard in 2018, looking for the Luke sisters' bodies. They found no human remains, and Joseph's sister stated her brother was in prison on unrelated charges when the girls went missing. Authorities believe that the girls were abducted by someone outside of their family. An extensive search has turned up no sign of them, and their case remains unsolved. Faloma was last seen wearing a light green shirt with a butterfly design and blue jeans. Melina was last seen wearing a white blouse and blue jeans. 
If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Rosalind, Philoma, or Molina, you were encouraged to contact the Northern Mariana Islands Department of Public Safety. Before we move on to our next stop, please take a moment to listen to our word from our sponsor. Thank you to Unidragon for sponsoring tonight's episode. With Christmas just around the corner, I'm sure you're facing the same problem as me. Finding the perfect gift to give a friend, your spouse, your nephew, or to bring to a work holiday party. There are so many things out there to choose from. But if you want to give something unique, I have the solution. It's called Unidragon. Expertly crafted wooden puzzles. I own the Charming Owl Puzzle. When it first arrived, I was completely blown away. Unidragon tells you that each piece has its own unique shape and they aren't wrong. They mention the incredibly vibrant colors of each puzzle and it will amaze you when you see one in person. The reasons why so many people love Unidragon puzzles is because it's interesting for adults and children. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box and new puzzles are released every month. Unidragon has given Murder Bucket listeners their very own promo code. When you go to unidragon.com and enter promo code BUCKET, you will receive 10% off. So get your shopping list done early this year by visiting unidragon.com and selecting one of their gorgeous puzzles. And we're back. Stop 49, Nevada. On the evening of January 19, 2014, 45-year-old Irma Mukachin left her home in the Lakes neighborhood of Las Vegas, Nevada to meet a client at the Alanza Apartments. She was an insurance broker for Farmers Insurance. She was seen in the vicinity of South Durango Drive and the West Desert Inn. She never returned home. Irma texted her boss that she needed to miss work for a few days to attend the funeral of her ex-husband's aunt in California. She then texted her family that she was going to California for a business trip and would return in a few days. In the same text, she also mentioned that she was going to leave her vehicle at the apartment complex that she had visited earlier and leave the keys in the gas tank cap. She mentioned her phone was dying and that she left her phone charger at home. According to her family, this was very uncharacteristic of her because she required her phone for her job. At the time of her disappearance, Irma was living with her ex-husband, Era, and they had two children, both in college, one at a local university and the other in Illinois. Era and Irma were married for 16 years before they divorced in 2007. Era claims that their split was amicable, but instead, Irma's friends insist that she was brutally beaten by her husband and that she was afraid he might try and kill her. David Mukherjee, Irma's brother, called her on the day that she disappeared to remind her about her uncle's birthday. For the next two days, he called her several more times, leaving voicemails. On the third day, he heard from Irma's son regarding her disappearance. 
Devitt lives in New York City, and in February, he traveled to Las Vegas to lead in the search for his sister. He wasn't convinced that the text messages he and several family members received were actually from her. In an article on LasVegasSun.com, he is quoted saying, When I heard this message, I knew something was wrong. Irma couldn't leave her phone switched off because all her business is attached to the phone. I called the son and I said, go right now and report to the police. Three weeks after her disappearance, David sat in front of Irma's unoccupied office desk inspecting pieces of mail while speaking to her boss. He scanned the notes that she had scribbled on one of the letters. He was hoping that there would be a clue. Two of their family members were there with him. They were going on nine days since they had arrived in Las Vegas, trying to uncover clues, and all were exhausted. For 12 hours each day, they canvassed the Las Vegas Valley, posting flyers and passing them out. They asked people to be on the lookout for a 45-year-old woman who was 5 foot 5, 120 pounds, with blonde hair and brown eyes. They spoke to a Las Vegas Armenian church to help with the search. Every day, they checked in with the police to get any updates. Many times, the police told David that Irma was an adult and was able to leave if she wanted to. He remained suspicious. He never believed that she would voluntarily run away from home and abandon her family, especially since their mother had recently had a heart attack. Era began his own investigation by reviewing phone records. He stated that the records revealed Irma had a second phone and was texting and calling two separate numbers. He found out that one number was a counseling center in East Sahara. According to KTNV.com, he contacted the center and spoke with an employee who stated that Irma had a drug addiction problem and was referred to a center in California. He reportedly also learned that she was involved in some sort of religious group. Her son Arthur states that the creed for this religious group states this, The only way to be close to God is to leave all your material belongings and ultimately commit suicide. According to her ex-husband and son, Irma had asked them about Baja, California, and Mexico about a month before she disappeared. The police served ERA three separate search warrants on their home, and they seized nearly $100,000 in cash, cell phones, electronics, two vehicles, and several hundred personal items. They also performed wiretaps on ERA's phone and gave him a lie detector test, which he failed. In 2015, Era and his two children sued the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department for the return of the property and cash that was taken during the searches. They stated that the items and cash did not belong to Irma. The Clark County District Court judge ordered Era to appoint a representative for Irma in the proceedings or the case would be dismissed. Because no representative was appointed for her, the court judge dismissed the case. The case was then brought before the Nevada Supreme Court 
which agreed with the lower court's decision and dismissed the filing. In December of 2018, Lieutenant Ray Spencer with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department's Homicide Section was quoted in an article on KTNV.com saying, There was some cell phone data that we analyzed, and we know when we were told she left to go to work, but we know she never left with her phone. That phone never left the house that evening. Lieutenant Spencer goes on to say, To the family or anyone looking for answers, I say, don't lose hope. These cases can have an ending if the right person comes forward or the right piece of evidence is found. In the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department's homicide section, cold cases are never closed and there is an entire unit dedicated to revisiting the files to make sure that nothing was missed or overlooked. Irma was born in Soviet Armenia and moved to the United States as an adult. She had a master's degree in mechanical engineering from an Armenian university. She also attended the Manhattan School of Computer Technology. David continues to investigate his sister's case and is desperate for a fresh pair of eyes to review the case to make sure that nothing was overlooked. At the time of her disappearance, no one saw what Irma was last seen wearing except for a dark-colored leather band-type necklace with a large silver-leaf-shaped medallion. She had blonde hair and brown eyes, and her ears were pierced. She could speak and read Armenian and Russian fluently. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Irma Mukherjee, you were encouraged to contact the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to tonight's episode. Before you go, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at Always Time for True Crime Podcast. Hey guys, I'm Julia the host of Always Time for True Crime. Each week, I cover a lesser-known case of murder, both solved and unsolved, disappearances, or serial killers. So if you're looking for something beyond Ted Bundy or John JonBenet Ramsey, come check out Always Time for True Crime and learn about some cases you may have never heard of. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurderBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.